I thought burnout was just the equivalent of like, you haven't got it, you know, you haven't got it. You couldn't keep on going. And then one day at work, I literally came out of a meeting and collapsed in the street. Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor. I'm so excited for you to listen to this week's episode. But before we kick it off, I'd like to say a big thank you to our series sponsors, Chipper Cash, the African cross-border payments company trusted by over 4 million users. Chipper has been on an incredible journey and the team is hiring for some exciting roles at the moment. So if you want to be part of their mission to unlock global opportunities and bring Africa together one transaction at a time, head over to chippercash.com forward slash careers to find out more. We also had the great pleasure of having Chipper's founder, Hamsa and Joji, on the podcast last series to find out all about their amazing journey from startup to double unicorn. So I'd definitely encourage you to check out the interview via a link in the show notes. But before you listen to Ham's episode, let me introduce today's brilliant mentor. This week, I'm joined by a real industry disruptor, the co-founder and CEO of Farewell, the brilliant Dan Garrett. Farewell is a multi-award winning wills, probate and funeral company on a mission to change the way the world deals with death. I love Farewell's mission. And Dan speaks with such honesty, humility, and passion about his journey so far, including how they're disrupting the biggest possible untouched consumer industry and how customer centricity sits at the core of everything they do, whether that's hiring or their day-to-day customer care. Dan also shares some of the most heartwarming messages that people have left in their wills. Get your tissues at the ready. It's a really touching moment. I absolutely loved finding out more about Dan's incredible journey as an entrepreneur, hearing the mistakes he's learned from and his vision for Farewell's future. So with all that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy the next 40 minutes with the exceptional Dan Garrett. Dan, welcome to the 40 Minute Mentor. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. So we're going to do what we always do, start with some quick fire questions. So please finish the following sentences for me. Are you ready? Absolutely. Good man. Right. When I was younger, I always wanted to be... The honest truth is I wanted to be an inventor and I still want to be an inventor. So I know that's like, okay, well, you know, it's my childhood dream, but it is, I want to be an inventor. Nice. Was that chitty chitty bang bang or something else that inspired you? The main disagreement in like my life growing up was between my parents where my mum had basically cultivated a massive pile of actual rubbish in our house that was called the rubbish corner and then just encouraged us. Both my parents were really creative, but just basically encouraged me and my brother to just like make stuff out of rubbish. And my dad was always like desperately trying to throw away this sort of gigantic pile of garbage. So um, I think that's kind of where it came from. Yeah. Yeah, I've made a lot of very strange things out of trash. <laughs> uh, well, I, one day you'll have to show me um, some examples. My first job was? Bicycle career. I was really into cycling when I was growing up. And I thought, this is amazing. I can get a job delivering posts and stuff in uh, and get really fit at cycling. So I think I started doing that when I was 18. I mean, you know, apart from other like random bits and bobs jobs and... I was I took it really seriously so I did it on a racing bike in like full like oh, wow. I used to get like bullied by all by all of the other couriers but it was such a great job and you get to know London so well go to amazing places I always this is quite bad but I always took pictures if it was like a celebrity's address so somewhere on a very old phone I have lots of celebs addresses which I'm sure <laughs> is a GDPR didn't exist back then fair play oh wow that is it and that's a that's a great one you're Getting good work experience and you're keeping fit. Double whammy. Awesome. My biggest achievement in my career today is? It's a bad answer, but I'm quite externally validated. So things like, it's not what it's about, but things like fundraisers are often the culmination of doing loads of things right. I remember after closing our seed round, and I have a reputation as being notoriously stingy. <laughs> Some people like describe me as the stingiest, the stingiest founder in, in London, which I really relish. I, I have to say I'm changing my way slightly. I remember after closing our seed round, me and Tom, my co-founder, going to the cash point and putting in our company card and checking 
the balance, <laughs> checking the balance on this on a cash machine and looking at it. And we were like, oh my God, how have we managed to do this? There are funny little moments like that where it's always really hard to take stock of the stuff that you've achieved. And there are just actual comical moments where you're able to look at something on a cash machine and it really represents, you know, all the progress that you've made. Apart from that, and I think maybe we'll talk about it a bit later, we work with loads of charities doing legacy fundraising. And a couple of months ago, I think we hit half a billion pounds raised for charity and pledged income. That's pretty cool. I'm excited about that. That's incredible. Oh, well, well, massive congrats on that. And I, I think there'll be loads of founders or aspiring founders that now will go, oh, I must do that. I must plug the, the card in the machine and take a picture and just like savor that moment. Because it's, it's, it's always the combination of a lot of hard work and blood, sweat and tears. So I think that's a great, great answer. I wish I could be better at... Finishing stuff. I'm a great starter. Really like love to start stuff. Not a good finisher. <laughs> And that's always been the way I get so excited. I have so much energy for starting things. And the problem is, if you're really good at starting stuff and not good at finishing them, it can create some havoc in the business. So I've, I've, learned, to, I've learned to temper both ends of it and also have some great partners in our exec team who are the world's best finishers. Yeah, so <laughs> that's my problem. That's not the first time I've heard that. Uh, yeah, it's, I think with founders as well, like there, there's so many great founders that are just ideas people and amazing at getting stuff going. And then that's where I guess the COO sometimes comes in or, or, or someone that you just get a perfect foil that can finish those sorts of things off and really be really strong on the execution. So very common answer to that. My biggest vice is... I did literally just finish an industrial size bag of mini eggs so it could be it could be mini eggs. Probably the real answer is adrenaline. And you probably had that answer before as well. But you get so used to operating in this really high stress environment. And I really like it. I've always liked it. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. And it's a bit of a drug, you know? So I think I've become a worse peacetime CEO. And I'm a good wartime CEO. And in times of peace... <laughs> I will create wars to fight you know? um, <laughs> because you need that adrenaline, you need that urgency. So sometimes I'll look around in our exec team and have a bunch of people staring back at me being like, why? Why is he creating a war when we're finally at peace? But yeah, you do get a bit hooked on adrenaline. And when it's not there, you kind of feel like something's wrong. It's like you're in the eye of the storm, whereas actually it's just, you know, <laughs> you're getting things right. That's a very honest answer and I appreciate it. And finally, can you tell us um, one thing that we wouldn't learn from your CV so that can be a perceived failure or some sort of setback in your career that you've learned a lot from. I think it's probably an answer that you would have had from other people. But, you know, especially if you're reading someone's CV, it's a, it's a really nice tale of all the different successful things that you've been through in your... And, you know, from listening to your podcast before, it's, it's often much more of a, a sort of tale of struggle. And I used to really pride myself on being able to work incredibly hard, like doing really long hours. I just got loads of energy. I never got tired. I could just keep on going. And I really, I thought burnout was just the equivalent of like, you haven't got it, you know, you haven't got it. You couldn't keep on going. And then one day at work, I literally came out of a meeting and collapsed in the street and just couldn't think straight after that. And I think that's been quite a, an ongoing battle for me of being pretty high energy, able to do a few different things across the company and realizing that the trick to actually scaling a company is not how much work can you do per day at 1,000 miles an hour in total wartime mode? So, so I, think that's, that's the, I think there's a real personal struggle if you're relatively inexperienced in the business world, if you're a first-time founder, in figuring out, you know, it is that founder-to-CEO kind of thing. But for me, it's been very well punctuated through, you know, collapsing in the street or having other sort of, uh, you know, massive nervous breakdowns. It really resonates with me, to be honest with you, Dan. I think we're very similar. I, I, I kind of thrive on the craziness and the, the pace. And when it's almost too much, I have to kind of get to breaking point and then to take a step back. And I'm still struggle with, even when I think I'm like doing some breathing exercise, and doing, I, I still kind of always seem to fall back into that. So I think a lot of people listening to that that have started businesses will be listening, nodding their head. And, and, and I think it's just great that we're all talking about this a bit more. I think that's the most important thing. And that there is, there's so much out there now to help founders just f strike a better balance and just, just not bury your head in the sand with that sort of stuff. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. 
I think it's kind of like the adrenaline thing I was mentioning before of like, I reckon you can go two ways with that kind of thing. And you can think, oh, how do, how do I minimize the struggle? How do I keep calm and the rest of it? Whereas actually, I actually really believe in like maximizing struggle in your life. And that's the amount that I've got to learn and do and figure out about myself through really struggling, I think is the luckiest thing that I'm able to be exposed to those sorts of opportunities. So I'm very pro-struggle, basically. Yeah, I think you you find out about yourself when you're in t- like challenging situations and you and you you make mistakes and yeah and 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 this is something that's been a theme on the podcast and we didn't want it to be just all like the, all the amazing stuff. We wanted it to be real. And, and the truth is, as a founder of a startup or a business like ours, it, a lot of it's pretty shit <laughs> at times. It is really really hard, and you've got to get through that. And I think that's often the making of you as a, as a, as a, as a founder, how you get through that and your learnings for the next time. But sadly, it's not a case of, uh, it's a one-time thing that they're, they're kind of pretty consistent. And, uh, you just, I think you get to learn to deal with them better. Don't you? The more you've, the more you've, you've kind of experienced. I'm going to talk lots about Farewell, but, um, just quickly, I, I wanted to get a little insight into the younger Dan. Like, what were you like growing up? Did you always have this entrepreneurial adrenaline focused sort of spirit tell our listeners a bit more about your sort of earlier years oh i thought about this a lot it's kind of why have i ended up doing this thing i've had a really active imagination i think since i was a kid and that was really encouraged by my parents and my massive pile of trash that my like i was saying before my mom kept in the house i also grew up right next to crematorium and it was uh out the back of my house where i grew up was this crematorium and we used to just go for walks in there and stuff so i had this kind of nice nice relationship with <laughs> with the world of death but the thing i loved doing was making stuff making anything drawing things like making monsters out of toilet paper <laughs> and i remember so much of this stuff is kind of parenting related i reckon and my parents are such good parents it's great they're really encouraging of me and my brother and i think my mum always both my parents, but my mum in particular from when I was really young, just actually took it seriously. If I was five and made a toilet paper monster or something, my mum would be like, whoa, that's actually really good. You know, and, and, and I don't think she was serious as well. She wasn't just being condescending. She was like, wow, that's amazing. Like, what's the next thing that you're going to do? And I, I think she's always seen me as a, a bit, as having a real artistic streak, which I've really I think that's been a big focus of my entire life and I kind of see it the same way in my job that I do now because like, so I, I studied design at the Royal College of Art I did maths and engineering before that at university but then I went on to the Royal, Royal College of Art and I really see my job now as a design challenge and it's how do you design a company and I think there's lots of things about what we do as a business and how we work as a team that are non-standard as they are in any business that together with my team have got to approach from quite different standpoint so I think that thread that's gone through my life is has been a mixture of creativity and sort of a bit of analytical know-how my my mum's dad my grandpa always just did like mental arithmetic with me and stuff and he was really really good at it and I got quite good at maths and so they've always had those kind of two things going on at the same time and I've never wanted to double down on one of them so it's always been it's always been integrating those two different things together and I think that gives you interesting ways of solving problems yeah, I love that. And and you referenced it. So you you obviously studied at Oxford and then went very different route at the Royal College of Art um, in Tokyo. I think you, you spent some time. So, and it, I read somewhere that working in a Japanese residential home is, is part of where the idea for Farewell came about. So can you tell our listeners, I guess, for those that don't know Farewell, a bit about what the business does. And I'd love to learn a bit about how you kind of came up with the concept and, and then Finally, just it'd be good to hear about the early parts, you know, the, the challenges that we all love to hear about in those early days. Yeah, totally. So at Farewell, we're on a mission to change the way the world deals with death. And we started out doing wills. And I'll talk a bit about our particular approach to wills, but we're the biggest in the UK. We run right about one in 10 of all new wills. We then started taking on other parts of all the different services around death. So uh, we're one of the biggest probate companies in the UK and we're the fastest growing funerals company in Europe. And we do something called direct cremations. So what we've tried to tackle is this industry that hasn't changed really for centuries, 
which is right at the heart of one of the most difficult experiences that anyone goes through in their whole life and to come at it from quite an oblique angle. So we handle all of the sort of technical, legal, procedural bits of it so that people can focus on the emotional experience of dealing with death. And I'll give you a few examples of what exactly we mean we mean by that. So how I got into it, and again, it's quite a weird thing to do, like you said, was at the Royal College of Art. I loved going there. It's the most amazing kind of postgraduate university. I did this course that was split between... Tokyo and New York and London. And there was 12 of us on the course. They kind of brought together people from sort of science and design and business backgrounds. And everyone was really, really high caliber. Uh, some of the people that I met there are just the most amazing people I've ever met in my life. And when we spent about five months in Tokyo and we were working on this project, it's a, you know, it's a lot of kind of aging population type projects there. And I spent a few months working in a geriatric home we had this you know there were other sort of design researchers anthropologists ethnographers really really solid team of people who's basically if you boil it down everyone's speciality is getting to the 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 root of the biggest problem that someone is struggling with in their life and trying to find ways of solving it and what i noticed when we were in this care home environment is we completely ignored what i saw as the biggest challenge which is you have a bunch of people who know they're going to die you know, you don't get to 97 and think you're going to be springing out of bed in the morning. But all of the work that we did was just about dealing with the physical sides of aging, getting in and out of bed and up and down stairs and how you can eat and stuff. And it's like, okay, fine. You know, by the time you're in your late 90s, you've kind of said goodbye to your peak physical health. And actually, it's about how you go through that final bit of your life in a really intentional way way and I think we completely missed the point of being there so when I came back to UK I spent a couple of months in the death industry and that was just very much the way that I worked at the Royal College of Art and that the, the other people I like to sort of get really stuck into a particular topic so I sort of helped to organize 15 funerals I got a qualification in will writing and got a helped a couple of people filing probate applications as well and just thought had this realization it was like this is the biggest consumer industry that's been untouched not just by technology but by any kind of customer centricity and it isn't because it's macroeconomically impossible it's a kind of hundred billion dollar market it's not because it's technologically unfeasible as we've shown it's because there is this kind of fundamental human aversion to talking about and dealing with death and that to me is this amazing mixture of this crazy Dickensian, you know, Victorian industry. And, you know, you can look around, I'm sure you can picture your local funeral, your local funeral director and this really fundamental part of what it is to be human, which is how you deal with the fact that you're going to die. So I love the emotional intensity of it. And I love the fact that it really is one of the last great undisrupted things. The other bit of it, that there's something called the Holmes and Ra stress scale. And it basically rates all these different things that you can go through in your life out of 100 it's essentially an awfulness scale. And there's stuff like, you know, going to prison, how bad that is. You know, getting married rates quite high in terms of its, the intensity of stress that it causes. Having kids, you know, losing a job. And the thing that scores 100 out of 100 is losing a partner or a parent or a best friend. This is provably the worst thing that you experience in your entire life. And that's just true across basically most different cultures, times, places, and the response to it, the industrial response to it, is like something from 1820. You know, it hasn't moved with the times. It doesn't focus on supporting the actual problem at the base of it. It focuses on the legal and technical compliance aspects of it. So to me, it's, in a way, you could say it's almost like cheap of me in the, not cheap, but lazy. In the Royal College of Art, I spent all my time looking for something that was undisrupted, you know, and we really found it in death. If I was in, God knows how badly I'd be doing if I was in a much more competitive arena. I didn't have the skills or experience to build a company, a fintech company that's going up against someone else. But I think we found our thing in death. And it's not something that really many other people work on. So we've been able to make huge strides in the products that, that we've built so far. That's amazing. Yeah, it really is genius and uh, so important. And I know you, yeah, we'll come on to talk a bit about some of the things you do that are so unique and, and, and making a real difference to people's lives. But before we come on to that, death is a topic that, you know, it, as you said, it, it is the one of the few guarantees in life. And yet it's still this taboo. So how did you get comfortable talking about it, dealing with it? 
and how are you helping others kind of break down some of those kind of traditional attitudes towards death? Yeah, really good question. So I've never totally understood what a taboo is, but I, but I remember having this really strong realization in the initial stages of the project, which I started with two of my friends at the Royal College of Art, Anton and Coraldo, who are both exceptional designers. And we went into it thinking, okay, why don't people do this? You know, there's interesting neurology and psychology behind it. We're basically psychologically hardwired to not think about death because it's so monumental and awful. If you actually had a real appreciation of the fact you were going to die, it kind of conflicts with your desire and drive to achieve anything. So it's a clever trick of sort of evolutionary biology that we're kind of incapable of conceiving of it, which is interesting. In terms of it being a taboo, I think it depends how you bring it up and what questions you ask. So if you ask someone, you know, how do you feel about dying? It's just this, you know, immediately you think, oh my God, what a, what a completely existential, you know, impossible to answer question. It's too big to wrap your hands around. If you ask people something like, if you were going to leave one object to your son, you know, or you had, what's the thing that you would save from a fire and why? And then who would you want to have that if you died? Or what would you want your funeral to be like? You will have a bunch of people in a pub or around a table or whatever having a really deep, interesting, meaningful conversation for, you know, a while. So I don't think it's a taboo, but I think we have, we have unsophisticated ways of talking about it. And then, you know, if you look at how that plays out in the industry, I think the wills and probate and funeral industry have all grown out of this history of rather than finding productive ways of speaking about the topic itself, hiding behind the veneer of tradition and formality in order to not have to have the conversations at all and saying, oh, if you want to do a will, it's all about, you know, dotting the I's and crossing the T's legally, rather than what we focus on, which is really getting someone to express what they care about and who they love in their will alongside doing the formal side of it. Yeah, that's so, so interesting. I just love hearing about it because in, in some ways it's, it's such an obvious thing because it's so impactful to all of us we all have to you know we sadly we lose loved ones all the time and uh, especially in the last couple of years it's just a, a tragic part of life i love how you've gone about disrupting it and i know it's been a incredible journey so you, you're now a team of over 90 you've raised a 30 million series b funding round in 2020 and loads of awards and loads of plaudits so I, I, I you know congratulations on all your success but i also know that being a founder involves not such great things. So it would be good to hear about some of the biggest challenges that you faced and, and have there been any particular mistakes you made along the way that um, our listeners can learn from? Yeah, totally. We have obviously made loads of mistakes. We've also got loads of things, right? So in terms of actionable stuff to learn from, one of the best lessons that I had so far was early on when we were building the company and it was me and my co-founder, Tom, and we raised our seed round from Kindred Capital, uh, from Tracy and Layla, who were there, and Tracy's still the chair of our board. And they had this incredible sort of talent advisor, like people advisor called Michelle Coventry, who I still speak to on a weekly basis, who's just a complete volcano of energy and wisdom about building teams. And Michelle meticulously taught me and Tom how to hire people so how to source you know and i'm real at technical recruiting how to do kind of like boolean searches and how to use applicant tracking systems how to do there's a hiring methodology called top grading and you know how to interview in a way that removes bias but most importantly how to get people engaged in a process to the point where we have i still believe that we have a 100 percent acceptance rate when we make a job offer to someone so, you know, a lot of this is, it, it used to be more of a buyer's market hiring. Right now, if you want a job in technology, you're going to have people biting off your, if you've got any kind of experience, you have people, you know this better than anyone. It's a complete seller's market. So, so instead of seeing talent as, you know, a process to run through to screen out bad candidates, we got a complete masterclass from Michelle in how to, you know, write really compelling job specs. Like we regularly get people reading our job specs saying like, okay, this is the best, you know, and we've recently done a couple of executive hires and I'll agonize over the pack that we do. It's the same as a pitch deck. How can I have an outsized ability to attract candidates that other people won't? How can we run the best possible process? And how can I make sure that when we, like I'll spend two hours writing an offer letter to someone that I'll read out to them 
and really prioritize learning about who they are and what they want in the process, not just, you know, do they tick the boxes of what we're after? So that was a completely revolutionary way of looking at talent. And it meant that we were always able to punch above our weight in terms of getting great people into the business. That was probably the gift that keeps on giving. And Michelle's got to be one of the best people in the world at that. Then another lesson, we had an interesting one recently. So I don't, I never, I never know where to say we made a mistake or we basically we tried something and it really didn't work. I don't think we were fast enough to find it out, but I'm still totally not sure how, what we got wrong. But so we did direct cremations, which is a funeral without where, where no one attends the cremation itself. And the idea is it kind of untethers the whole process from the traditional funeral landscape of, you know, local authority crematorium and graveyards. So rather than it just being, oh, you know, I hated my uncle and I want, to have, want him to have an un, unattended cremation, it's we carry out the cremation, hand deliver the ashes back to the family, and we help them go through this process of thinking about what the best way to memorialize that person is. You know, in the last few weeks, we've had people scrattering ashes on top of the South Downs and singing. We've had champagne and chicken nuggets on a beach, that kind of thing. Really personal, thoughtful things that celebrate someone's life. So that's what we do. Really, the whole industry is changing, which, you know, 3% of funerals were direct cremations in 2019. Last year, it was 18% of funerals were direct cremations and 24% in kind of peak lockdown months. Last year, we broadened out from direct cremations into doing all different types of funerals, burials, attended ones, because the major reason for not going with us when people got in touch was, oh, I was actually looking for an attended one. So it felt really user-driven. We were you know, assessing the whole market and we spent a long time building out the logistics and the positioning and the experience, and it's a lot more complicated doing attended funerals. And it just didn't work. You know, the advantages that we could generate for customers from being online didn't outweigh the disadvantages of not being local, high street based. And it felt like we were making those decisions from a user perspective. And if you think, you know, that crossing the chasm thing, of you have that hump of you've got early adopters and you've got laggards and innovation theory is like, okay, can you cross the chasm? Is it just early adopters? Can you cross the chasm into the mass market? And I think we were too early. But it was interesting that people said they wanted an attended cremation and we built it and it didn't work. And that was a huge amount of effort, a massive investment from us, huge amount of time poured into it. Can you pinpoint what, what was it that didn't work or why? I think it's too much of a leap. I think it's too much of a leap. So someone who wants a direct cremation is inherently saying, I don't want a traditional funeral. And they're already on that early adopters end of the spectrum. Whereas someone saying, I want a more traditional funeral, is a, it's more of a mixed bag. And although they may be searching online, it's still a big leap to go, okay, well, I'm going to go fully online, which isn't what the market is used to. So the thing I think about is how could we have tested that faster? Because you get into this loop where you think, oh, is the quality of what we built good enough? And then you invest more in it and you're just, you know, you're just like trying to dig yourself out of the hole. So I think that was a good example to me of like a real strategy error or at least an error in how we tested it basically yeah i mean these are great examples and i think there are probably lots of people that will listen to that and take that on board and i also think just the piece on hiring which obviously so we know a bit about i love how thoughtful and intentional you are when it comes to hiring and that personal touch is is actually it is time consuming but it makes the world of difference and and unfortunately i think there are found is that it's obviously a priority tire. It's actually most people's biggest pain point and priority. But I think sometimes you just get in a rhythm of just, it becomes transactional because there's so much to do and there's so many hires to make that you forget this is an incredibly important thing in someone's life. And so actually by taking the time to write a really personal and crafted job description and then deliver an offer in a very compelling way where you're personalizing it, I think that's why you're able to hire the best people. And I salute you for that because unfortunately we see too often the, the opposite. And I think as a result, a lot of great companies miss out on a lot of great people. Before we continue with today's episode, I was wondering if I could ask you a small favor. We absolutely love sharing our guests' inspiring stories with you. And I can't thank you enough for being one of our loyal listeners. But feedback is so important. So if you have any suggestions on how we can make 40-Minute Mental even better, or you just want to tell us how much you love the show or a particular episode, then we would love to hear from you. So please head over to ratethispodcast.com 
forward slash 40mm and leave us a review. We really, really appreciate it. That's ratethispodcast.com forward slash 40mm. Thank you so much. And we can't wait to hear from you. And just coming on to something you said earlier about, you know, the size of the market you're attacking, you know, 7.1 billion in the UK alone, you know, and you've disrupted that using technology, which hadn't really been done before. So how did you approach disrupting an industry, you know, that you, yeah, I guess you, you knew a bit about, but you, what were you most worried about when you took that massive mammoth challenge on? Probably not enough. I just didn't know what I was, you know, didn't totally know what I was doing. So ignorance is bliss there, yeah. <laughs> totally. No, it really is. And lots of people have spoken about that in, in the past. You don't know what you don't know. So and it was a classic example of, I was at the Royal College of Art, the final project that I worked on there with Tom and Corraldo and Anton was, was the first version of Farewell, which was this really beautiful, very simple online will writing tool. And we focused on one number at the beginning of it. And this, this is like, you know, we presented this in the final show at the Royal College of Art. It has 80,000 people go to it. Most of it's beautiful paintings and sculpture and animation. And we had this stand where people were making their wills. And we had people queuing up to use it. So it was, it was a little bit out of place. But we've, all we focused on was the percentage of people including personal messages and funeral wishes in their wills. So the whole product experience was centered around that, not just revenue or customer numbers. And the th- thing that made me so excited about it was we got this incredible interaction out of the people who were using it. They were putting in these beautiful, unexpected things inside their will, and they were surprised by it, and they loved it. So I think it was a classic example of, you know, you take a different approach to a problem. And, you know, 18 months after that, we were the biggest will writer in the UK because we focused on the emotional engagement inside the product, not just the legal compliance. So we have permission from a few people to some of the favorite messages. Of, like I used to check all the wills, and we have an amazing team that checks wills now. And we still, we reach out to people and we say, it's so inspiring what you've written in your will. Would you be happy for us to share it, you know, inspire other customers? And I, and I, thought, I'd, I thought I'd share a, a few of those. Oh, please do. Yeah, amazing. So this is a guy who left, he, he collects fossils and he left his fossil collection to his wife in his will. And he wrote, these are millions and millions of years old. I loved being able to hold them and marvel at the age and intricacy of our universe and the short, sharp beauty of our lives. I loved living mine. I love you. It's just like incredible. It's so powerful. And there's a guy, one of those I really love, this guy who was writing to his two sons in his will. And this is, you know, he's gone on online to find a place to do his will, probably been hanging over him for five years. And in the process of this online experience, no human interaction, writes this absolutely amazing love letter to his kids. So this is what he wrote. Boys, yup, I'm a goner. You've both given me the best memories that any father could ever wish for. You've made my life complete. Now one last favour from you both, please. Wherever you think the best holidays were that we had, please both go together back to the top two or three destinations and scatter my ashes on the beach so that the tide comes in and takes me out and I may endlessly travel on the waves. So whenever you go to the coast, just look out to sea and I'll be there. And to me, we talked about, you know, when we... <laughs> When we, you know, when we're at the RCA, I've, 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 there were so many projects where you speculate about how you could create experiences to bring these sorts of things out of people. And what I loved with what we did at the RCA was we found a way of doing it. We found a way of doing it. And then, to my mind, the best way of scaling those sorts of experiences is by running a business. You, know? you need to be able to reach people. You need to be able to scale it. So, so I think it started with that insight of it was possible to get people to connect with the really difficult parts of dealing with death. And that's something we've then brought into the probate business and into the funerals business. And in the funerals business, we, we really focus on getting people as early as possible in the process to share memories about the person who they've lost. And we've got a whole platform for doing that. And the stuff that gets written on that, which I actually, we don't have permission to share, but it's beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful. You know, for someone who's lost their 25-year-old son, and you've got all these messages of his friends saying, you know, here's this time that I remember where he was doing something. And it brings that person to life and really helps with the grieving experience. So, yeah, that's kind of how it started. Yeah. And I, and I think there'll be people listening. I mean, I'm glad you like it. Yeah, it really is. And I, and I actually think we all know that one day we'll die. And actually, we know that the we know the impact that will have on others because we felt it ourselves. So actually, just 
if people are listening to this, just taking the time out to just sit down and think about what you'd want to say to your loved ones when you know that horrible event happens, just to give them a little bit of extra comfort. I just think, I don't know why you wouldn't do that. And I'm, you know, I, it's something I will definitely do off the back of this because you just, just think about if I received that message. Yeah, if I honestly, if I received that message from my dad, that would, it would not take away the pain, but it would, that would just be a bit of an extra bit of him, you know, just that I can remember him by. And I think it's just so powerful. We're running out of time, Dan, so we've got lots more to talk about. I want to tell you one more that was really funny that I always remember where, so this guy, quite young guy, had a bunch of different stuff in his world and he'd left his Hoover to his mum. It's like a Dyson Hoover and wrote, I always knew you had your eye on this, but don't register it because it fell off the back of a lorry. And it's like, there's just such a great like little picture of this guy, <laughs> of this guy in his life. Yeah, I really like that. That's awesome. Well, one of the things that I think has really stood out for me about Fairwell is the customer-centric approach. And you've got over 10,000 reviews on Trustpilot, rated 4.9, which is pretty unheard of. It's clearly a big fundamental part of what you do. So anyone listening to this that really wants to build a customer-centric, better experience for customers, is there just any just quick tips or points from your experience that you could pass on? Have a Trustpilot channel connected to Slack have everyone in it we reinforce our team reinforces it every week and you know all hands we have like customer of the week it's always front of mind and it's always the stuff that's championed the most and it's all down to hiring again so you know we work in this really emotionally charged space and we tend to hire people who are really high eq really compassionate and haven't naturally gravitate towards creating you know delightful customer experience so you could say, oh, we work in this kind of you know, grimy, depressing area of death, whereas in reality, the people who tend to want to work at Farewell are incredibly compassionate and customer-centric. And the truth is, you know, you hire the right mentality inside the team, there's not some secret source for how we do it. We're also you know, very design-led, very brand-led. We build great product experiences and pride ourselves in doing that. But it's always down to the, the mentality of the people who are in the team. Amazing. And I think that just emanates across the business, doesn't it? And really attracts those sorts of people that will um, follow through on that. You talked earlier about the amazing work you do for charities and you reached half a billion pounds in, in, in legacy income through gifts to charities and wills, which is just incredible. And I know you did a lot of, you offered free wills to NHS workers during the pandemic. So um, it'd be just great to understand a bit about why you decided to kind of partner with charities and, and what impact that's had for you and on the business. Yeah, so I'd love to say it was premeditated and that I was an incredible strategist and thought this was a good way of growing. In reality, it was an accident. So like I said, when we launched the product in the Royal College of Art, we got this emotional engagement. We noticed that we had a huge number of people, including charities in their wills, much higher than the average in the market. And I think it was because we changed it from being purely transactional to actually being more holistic. What do you care about when you die? So quite early on in the business, we were introduced to the innovation team at Macmillan who were very interested in experimenting with kind of more digital ways of generating income. It's a little known fact, but one in three pounds that go to charity in the UK, that go to the third sector, are from legacies. So from gifts and wills. A huge, huge part of what funds all the amazing work that gets done in the UK through thousands of charities. So we started working with Macmillan, And if you imagine the job of someone who works in a charity, big or small, it's the worst marketing job in the world if you're doing legacy marketing. You put an advert in the Telegraph and 15 years later, you find out if your campaign was successful when someone's will comes through. So you don't get any of the immediacy of something like Google Analytics or any other modern marketing tools. And simultaneously, it gets really difficult to justify to your board of trustees invest in this sector because we can show that if we put a pound in over here, it equals 300 pounds over there. Timescales are long, there's no visibility. So it's only ever been the preserve of really big charities that have lots of cash who could do a you know TV campaign and they'd have a network of solicitors who would write a will for free or something in the hope of getting more legacy income. What we've developed, and we now work with kind of 250 charities doing it across the UK, is we have a sort of legacy fundraising platform. And yes, we do the wills for them and we have higher gift inclusion rates than anyone out there because of this emotional engagement. But we also have built a bespoke tool called Spotlight, which gives immediate feedback to legacy teams 
on the amount raised from the campaigns that they do. So they're able to say, okay, well, we're going to A-B test messaging or we're going to test TV against an email campaign. And the cost of doing it is an absolute fraction of what it would be through the kind of conventional legal world and conventional marketing channels. So what we've found is that we've had really forward-thinking, digitally literate charities who are able to generate massive amounts of legacy income through relatively low investment in what we help them to do. The coolest thing is that, you know, legacy fundraising is the single biggest opportunity for the third sector in the next 10 years. And it's because there's this confluence of the housing boom and the baby boom. So you have more people dying and everyone has this huge asset in their home, which if you say in your will, I want to include a few percent of my estate someone, it's like, you know, average value of that is kind of 50 grand. So it's been fascinating learning about the legacy fundraising sector. And it's been amazing to equip forward-thinking charities with the tools that they need to really get the most out of their audience. So yeah, definitely a huge kind of matter of pride for me and everyone else in the team that we've been able to work with such amazing charities. That's incredible. And and, and builds into this legacy of, of what Farrell is doing and the impact you're having at a massive scale on people's lives. So that's, that's, that's just awesome. I want to come on to talk about culture and hiring because we've touched on it already, but it's something that we're very passionate about. And you built a very high-performing team. So I'd love to firstly understand how you describe your culture to prospective hires and investors because it's such an important part of what candidates look for now. And then I'd also love to learn a bit about how your approach to hiring has changed over the years. And it sounds like you've you've got it really right. So if there's anything else that would be worth uh, sharing with our listeners. Yeah, totally. So I have a few different answers to this. Like it definitely is the culture is created from the people who are there, like early stages and at the top of the business. And it's ultimately creative and reinforced by everyone else. But it has to be an honest reflection of who you are as a team rather than there could be elements of it that are aspirational, but it has to be honest. Otherwise, it just gets completely rejected. I remember on this kind of program of CEOs from fast growing companies and hearing this talk from Sarah Wood, who used to run Unruly. And her saying, she was like, we hire pandas. And panda was an acronym for these different things. And I I know this is like a stupid place to start. If you ask the average CEO, average founder, what's your culture? They'll be like, oh, we have eight pillars. And the first one is integrity. And the second one is stewardship. And the third one, and then they, you know, maybe get half the way there and forget what they're about. So like, it's really dumb thing to say. Use an acronym. Like, use an acronym and hammer it home over and over again. And for us, we have this kind of illustrated character that is in all of our marketing and in our brand. And, he, and he's called The Blob. And our acronym is BLOB for what we look for in people when we hire blobs. And it stands for BU, which is a real completely honest part of our culture, which is that we totally expect and encourage everyone to bring their full honest self to work. Lean forward. So actively looking for opportunities to kind of gain skills and experience offering help, which is a big part of our culture. So people are, you know, to a T, kind and compassionate. If someone is struggling, people are naturally there to support them. If another team isn't quite, you know, getting the information they need. And the last one is bias to action. Speed matters. It's the critical differentiating sort of superpower of any startup versus an incumbent is speed. And I think it's easy to forget that as you start scaling the business and it gets bigger. Everything is about velocity. So we hire blobs, BU, lean forward, offer help, bias to action. And that's very regularly reinforced part of our culture. I think there's a meta level on top of that, which is basically, I think of it in terms of two axes. There's, you know, if you imagine the Y axis of like shared goals and divergent goals, and you imagine a Z, an X axis of shared perspectives, divergent perspectives. There's a lot of companies that are in the like shared goals, shared perspectives zone, where there's like a bit of a homogenous culture. It's pretty easy to run it. We're very, very far in the other end of the spectrum. So shared goals, everyone totally into the mission, really clear goals, really clear what we're all aiming towards. And we have the weirdest bunch of people that you ever will have encountered in any company from all different walks of life, from all different backgrounds and experiences and perspectives. And that's been, it hasn't even necessarily been intentional, but we have a massive diverse customer base. And I think with somehow manage to create a culture where people feel really able to be themselves at work and to talk about all kinds of things that you wouldn't necessarily be able to in other companies. And I'd say that's the thing that really underpins what's different about Farewell, where people say, you know, once they've onboarded, they're like, 
oh, you know, I thought this was all talk, but actually I'm completely able to do something of, you know, whether it's, you know, having facial piercings that work and you never felt like you could do that before or talking about some part of your life that you always felt was off limits. Yeah. Love that. And again, it's that sort of diverse and inclusive environment that does attract, you know, the best talent because this is one of the most common themes for us is, you know, just, just can I bring my full self to work in this organization? And if they don't feel they can, you know, that these days candidates are, are very unlikely to, to, to go there. And I think you've just done that so well. And I think it's a talent magnet thing, isn't it? I mean, you're a talent magnet just from your personality and the way you are so passionate about your mission. But then it seems like you've hired people that are all different types of people, but they also are so passionate about the mission. And that in itself, just you just have a bunch of advocates and ambassadors out there just kind of, yeah, doing a great job, doing your job, you know, in the industry as well, which is, is fantastic. So congrats on all that. I know it's not easy. So I think you've done an amazing job with it. Dan, I genuinely could talk to you for a long, long time, but we are sadly at the end. So we've come to our wrap up questions. So before we close today's episode, in one tenth sentence, what do you think the future holds for Farewell? So we the, the messages that I was reading out before, we call that stuff brighter goodbyes. And for me, in one sentence, what we really care about is brighter goodbyes for hundreds of millions of people. Amazing. And at the end of your career, what do you want to be remembered for? I think for really trying to be the best and biggest version of myself and for honestly encouraging other people to do the same. Love that answer. And this is the 40-minute mentor. Do you have a mentor? And if you could be mentored by one person, dead or alive, who would it be and why? I've got an amazing bunch of mentors. There's three people in particular who come to mind. Tracy, who's the chair of our board, who since we started the company has just been the most incredible partner to me. So much of what we've been able to achieve wouldn't have been possible without her. And she's just incredible. And she's always right, which is incredibly annoying. I'm desperate for her to be wrong, which she never is. One particular person who's had an outsized impact on me is Rich Pearson, who's the, who was the CEO of one of the co-founders of Headspace, who I think is just one of the most amazing brand and product thinkers and one of the highest integrity leaders that I've ever met before. And just talking to him for you know, a bit of time every now and again is totally game-changing, really inspiring. And I love Headspace. And then probably the person who's had the single biggest impact on me is, is my coach, Lucy Funnel, who I met after I burnt out. And she was my coach for years. And I've just never met anyone like her. A truly extraordinary person, life-changingly extraordinary. And she died. She died last year, quite out of the blue. Awful. The worst grief I've ever been through. The ultimate person who doesn't deserve... If you made a list of everyone who deserves to die, she would be at the bottom of it. And, oh, I'm so sorry. And, you know, I have a picture of her on, on my desk. She's just had a massive impact on my ability to, you know, do a good job at work, but also to make the most out of my life. And I'll forever treasure every bit of time that I got to spend with her. Oh, well, I'm so sorry you've been through that, but she... Sounds like she had an incredible impact on, on, on your life and farewell. So amazing memories. And I guess our final thing, Dan, is, is your last bit of advice for our listeners. So that could be career advice. That could be life advice. What would you like to leave them with? I feel like I've been really positive about loads of things, but definitely the number one thing if you're growing a business and it's all like, you know, positive, the culture is great and the rest of it. It's like, if it's not working out with an employee in the company or with yourself running a company, just end it. And we've made so many mistakes over time where it's been like the writing's on the wall. It's not going to work out with someone. And then we've just longed it out for ages. That's probably the single biggest accelerant that we've seen in business over time. It's like someone's just, just not in the right spot. Getting good at recognizing that and making, and, and making the change is just as important as the talent side, as important as every other part of the business. And we've actually been quite bad at it. And then on the personal side of things, I think I do really believe that the point of life is to discover, you know, innately what it is that you should be doing with your time and lean into that in every way you possibly can. Not in a, not in a selfish way, but in a, I think that's a good purpose to have in your life. And every time I feel a bit lost or unsure of what to do next, it's a good reminder from Lucy. Totally, I have to say, 
That's her philosophy, so I've stolen it from her. Oh, well, thank you, Lucy, because that's, yeah. Can't go, can't go wrong, yeah. Yeah, such wise words and, and pretty much the perfect place to, to leave this. I'm sure that will have inspired you know, many, many people. And, you know, from us, I think, I, I hope you'll get lots more customers off the back of this conversation because what you're doing is, is genuinely, like, game-changing and, and really important work. And I think we could all learn a lot from it and uh you know hopefully you know make that horrible experience of death a more positive one for for lots of people that we we care about so dan thank you for coming on the 40 minute mentor it's been a pleasure and yeah good luck for the rest of 2022 and beyond excited to see what happens thanks so much it's been a total pleasure to be on the show and to chat to you thanks dan dan is not only an incredibly successful founder but also one of the most charismatic and down-to-earth guests we've had the pleasure of hosting on 40 Minute Mentor. Farewell is such an impressive, innovative, and essential business. We are all impacted by death, and yet historically there's been such a taboo around it. It will always be an emotive topic for sure, but Farewell managed to bring real humanity to it and ultimately make things far easier, friendlier, and cheaper if you use their services. It was fascinating to hear more about Dan's personal struggles while being a founder, particularly his experience of burnout, something I've suffered from, and I know a lot of you listening will have done too. And as a founder who always puts people and relationships first, it was great to hear how Dan and the team tie everything they do back to being customer-centric, something that has clearly worked wonders given the Trustpilot reviews and the amazing culture he's created. I hope you took as much from that chat as I did, And if so, do go check out Farewell, as although the topic might not be one you want to think about, it's never too early to get a will sorted. Before you do that, I also wanted to leave you with another podcast recommendation that I've really enjoyed listening to lately. And that is Something Rhymes with Purple, with their hosts, Susie Dent and Giles Brandreth. Here's a little preview of what their podcast is all about. Hello, I'm Giles Brandreth, and with me is my friend... Susie Dent. Susie... What do you actually do? On Countdown, the show that I appear on in Britain, I am known as a lexicographer. I just like to say that I am a logophile. I would say I'm a wordaholic or a verbivore. We are doing a podcast. It's all about words and language, and it's called Something Rhymes With Purple, because something does rhyme with purple, doesn't it, Susie? Yes, that is the old dialect word herple, admittedly not on the tongue every day, but to herples, but with an I, is to limp, to walk with a limp. This is a podcast where we celebrate language. You just do amazing things and we have episodes about swearing, American English, oh yes. We go into spelling, dialect, euphemism, word games. It's about improving your word power, why words matter, learning the origins of words, having fun along the way. Something rhymes with purple with Susie Dent and Giles Brandreth. What a double act. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you so much for your continued support and see you again next week for another 40 minutes of inspiring mentorship. Mm -hmm.